0: Every good story needs a good villain. Batman had the Joker. Superman had Lex Luthor. The Avengers had Ultron. X-Men had the apocalypse. I could go on for a long time. Screenwriters and novelists know that what makes a great story is not just the characters, it's not just the setting, it's the conflict, a kind of juicy conflict that just sucks you in and forces you to take sides and wonder who's going to prevail in the end, the hero or the villain, the bully or the underdog, good or evil. Now, the historian of First Kings must have known this because when it came time to tell the stories about God's special agents, Elijah and Elisha, he, sp- he paid very special attention to very accurately and comprehensively introducing us to the two villains in the story, evil King Ahab and evil Queen Jezebel. One biblical scholar did account and realized that more ink is spilled, more words are used, To describe how evil Ahab and Jezebel were than were used to describe Pharaoh or Goliath or Judas or Pilate. By that standard alone, we can see that in these stories of Elijah and Elisha, Ahab and Jezebel are the most wicked villains in the entire biblical narrative. It is very clear. Who the bad guys are. And last week, Justin and Matt introduced us to the good team. A man named Elijah who burst onto the scene out of nowhere, ready, swinging away to jump into the ring with Ahab and Jezebel. He carried no gun, he wore no boxing gloves, he had no fancy gadgets on a utility belt. The only weapon in his arsenal were his words, the message that God wanted him to deliver, the mission that God asked him to fulfill. This quite simply was the role of the biblical prophet, to talk, to speak words of truth that no one ever wanted to hear to remind people to turn away from their wicked ways and to turn toward God, even if the people who needed to hear that message were too stubborn to hear it. The role of the prophet was simple. Get people to hush up, listen up, and shape up, even though everyone was trying to tear them down. I think it's fair to say the role of prophet It's absolutely the worst job in the entire Bible. That's why Jonah ran away. That's why Jeremiah wept. That's why Jesus was rejected in his hometown. Nobody wanted the role of prophet, and if we're honest, neither do we. It is not easy for you and me to speak truth to people who don't want to hear it. It's never comfortable to speak words of truth, especially when the people who need to hear it are powerful people. Telling people a truth they don't want to hear is something that we sometimes have to do, but we never want to do because we have a hard time doing it. It's a lot like this particular preacher on this video that I found about 10 days ago, who dared to say something to his congregation that some preachers really want to tell theirs. Today's reading comes from the book of Proverbs. I may digress for a moment from my prepared message. I mean it when I say to you, you guys, sometimes you're bad. Don't be jerks. You're supposed to be good. I'm in my office every day and somebody comes in and they're like, hey, whoops. my don't. Dan, what is your deal? If anybody doesn't know, Dan is the worst. I took a vow to not say who was the worst, but it's Dan. You guys are making me look bad in front of God. What's that? Oh, look, it's Jesus. And he said, stop it. The word of the Lord. (laughs) You know, you all clap for that video. It's almost like you're inviting me to be that preacher for you. (laughs) Except I'm afraid that if I tried to do this, I would sprain a muscle. (laughs) Well, now you know what it's like to have been Elijah, to have been a prophet. But the truth be told, there's a part of each one of us that could identify with that guy. And the kind of message that we know we've had to tell to people who don't want to hear it, like trying to tell a family member, after many long years of watching them destroy themselves, that you want them to address their drinking or their drug abuse, or like being a whistleblower at your company, having the courage to point out moral or ethical failings in that organization, knowing it may cost you dearly. Or maybe like trying to tell a family member that after years of living in a dysfunctional relationship with the family, you have decided to become healthy and not play along with the dysfunction anymore, knowing it might cost you dearly. Speaking words of truth, especially to people of power, is never easy. There are Ahabs and Jezebels all throughout the world and in our lives and in our families, and they don't like hearing the truth. So even though it is the toughest job in the Bible, thank God for the prophets. Well, so there's your background That's all you really have to know in order to get into the story from 1 Kings 18 that Isaiah read for you moments ago. The stage is set for a major battle royale between the good guy and the bad guy. This, in fact, is the very first time that Elijah and Ahab get to see each other face-to-face, person-to-person. And Elijah offered a very unique way of settling their differences and deciding who was right, Elijah came up with a proposal. They wouldn't duke it out. They wouldn't debate. But instead, they would have a contest. And you heard what that contest was. It would be a contest with two altars. Elijah said, okay, Ahab. Let's settle this once and for all. I'll tell you what, why don't you take all of your priests who are loyal to your false god, Baal, and I'll even let you combine that with all of the false priests that bow down to your wife's false god, Asherah. That's 450 of your priests, 450 of her priests, for 900 priests… I'll let you bring them in. And up against them will be all of the prophets of my God, Yahweh. Now, Ahab, as you know, you have rather successfully killed all of the other prophets of Yahweh, which means I'm the only one. So how about it? We'll have a contest between your prophets and God's. Now, Ahab was no dummy. He may have been wicked, but he was no fool. And he knew a good deal when he saw one. He saw 900 to 1 odds, and he said to himself, I'll take those odds. No problem, Elijah. You're on. Elijah went on. He dictated the terms of the contest. He said, instead of hand-to-hand combat or a fight to the death, Ahab, I and your prophets will have a fight To the fire. The first team to have their God send fire down from heaven onto their altar is the winner. And that God is the one true God. So, if you can imagine, the playing field was simple two altars, one altar for 900 prophets of Baal and Asherah. And then on the other side, one altar for Yahweh, the one true God. Now, here is where it gets really interesting for us. Here is where the author would almost invite us to push the pause button on the story and think for a moment about where we enter the story because it is entirely possible that what makes this story so important for us is that it is not, in fact, a story about us versus them. This is not about us Christians taking on the world around us. It is not about a bunch of high and mighty, holy roller, holier-than-thou Christians, taking on all of the evil cultural and political and military forces that are out there in the world today. What if, what if, in fact, the two altars in the story both coexist in our own souls? The youth said it better than I can two weeks ago on Youth Sunday. In their worship service about false idols, they said each one of us has a false god that we are worshiping, at least one, that we have erected an altar within our hearts to worship the false idols of our lives. We may not realize it. We may be reluctant to name it. We may hate to admit it, but each of us do. Because if it's true that in our DNA we are created to worship, and we are called to worship that which is bigger than ourselves, then the question really is, what are you worshiping? Who are you worshiping? It's very possible that many of us, if not most of us, have an altar that is built to the false god of achievement or social status or wealth, or power, or fame, or climbing the ladder, or looking better than other people. And we feel like if, if we can just prove that that God is real and make that God happy, then we have really made it. If we will just gain more and achieve more and look better than everybody else. Or is it possible that the altar that we have corrected erected in our lives to the false god is that which is built to a top-heavy reliance on human institutions to provide a kind of salvation that only God can provide. And so our altar is built to worship political campaigns or military might or economic systems to ensure that we are going to be okay out of a belief that God is on our side. Christian theologian and ethics professor Stanley Hauerwas was at Duke Divinity School in the wake of 9-11. The very same night after the two towers fell, the Duke campus held a prayer service, inviting everyone from the entire community to come together in prayer. Their prayers were, as you might expect, most people prayed prayers that you and I prayed in those hours after the attack. People prayed for the victims People prayed for wisdom for our leaders. People prayed for forgiveness for our enemies. All very good prayers, many of which I prayed myself, as I know you did too. And then Stanley Hauerwas walked down the aisle, and he stepped up to the microphone. And he took on the role of the prophet. And he dared, even in that setting, to speak truth to the altar in the human heart that worshipped a false god, his prayer went something like this. He said, Forgive us, Lord, for expecting our human institutions and our economic systems and our military might and our government to provide an eternal security and salvation that only you can provide. That's really what's at the heart of this story, you know. It's about the kind of God that you and I believe in. Do we believe in a God who is there only to be a giant vending machine, to give us what we want when we go through the right motions on our own terms, on our own timeline? Or do we believe in a God who is just a cosmic butler to obey our wishes and do every one of our commands to do what we ask when we ask for it? Well, if that's the case, then we are a lot like the 900. And they went first. Elijah, very cavalierly, won the coin toss and decided to kick off and let the 900 receive. So those nine hundred priests gathered the driest wood they could find. They slaughtered the animal. They put that animal on the altar in order to sacrifice it. And they prayed to Baal. And they prayed to Asherah. And they prayed and they prayed. prayed And then they waited. And then they prayed some more. And then they waited. And then they prayed some more. And then they waited some more. Hours and hours went by, but there was no fire. And Elijah was loving every minute of it. In one of the most beautiful, choicest passages in the entire Elijah story, Elijah said to those prophets, What's up, guys? How are you doing? You know what? Maybe your God is asleep, he said you know what you need? You need to wake him up. You need to scream louder. Maybe you need to dance a little bit. And so they did. They yelled even louder than they were. They danced, flailed about, maybe acted like that preacher a little bit. They even went to the resort of taking out their knives and their blades and cutting themselves and letting their blood gush out as a way of being an alarm. An alarm clock for Baal and Asherah to notice them, but they couldn't get that fire started. Because you see, that's what happens when you worship a false God. We'll spend lots of time searching for the right change and the right combination of buttons, and even go so far as kicking that vending machine, but there's no response. We'll spend lots of time and lots of energy and devote lots of frenetic action to trying to get that cosmic butler to do what we want, only to realize that God is not a butler after all. By the time the 900 priests gave up, by the time Elijah stepped up, we almost know what's going to happen before it even does. We know that God was going to rain down that fire. We know that God was going to deliver. We're a little surprised that Elijah decides to rub it in, takes five jugs of water and pours it onto the altar and then douses the meat, gets it soaking wet, digs a trench around the altar, fills it with water, so you've got a moat around this altar which has basically turned into a mud pit. By the time that fire rains down from God, there's not a single drop of moisture left. That animal has turned into char. And those 900 servants are standing there blinking in disbelief. And we shouldn't be surprised, except for this. That if we're really honest, when that happened, you and I. We were standing next to the other altar in the story. Oh, there's plenty of conflict in the story. But to say only that we are Elijah, and that Baal and Asherah and the other prophets and priests and the Ahabs and Jezebels are found all throughout the world, people who are different from us, people who are in conflict with us, people who are out there, that is to miss out on the power of this story for you and me this morning because it's too easy to let us off the hook. If we're really honest this morning, if we take a spiritual inventory of our lives, we will discover that we have not just one, but multiple altars erected to many false gods. God's in our souls, that we turn to for the kind of security that only God can provide. And if it's been a while since you have seen a demonstration of God's fire pouring out into your life and setting your spirit on fire with a boldness and courage and assurance of your faith, if it's been a while since you've seen God reign fire down on your spirit, then maybe it's possible that you've been standing next to the wrong altars this entire time. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands to see how many of you this applies to, but I can rest assure you, if I did, my hand would be raised among yours. In a few moments we will be inviting you forward to an altar. This communion table is our altar today. And as you step forward, as you get up from your pew and walk down the aisle and approach this altar, my prayer is that for you, with every step that you take to come near to this place, it will be a step that you choose to take away, to walk away from all of the false gods and the false altars that you have erected in your own life. So that when you come forward and you taste the bread and you drink the cup and you come before the one true God at this altar of the communion table, you, in fact, will not only hear the words, but say the words that those 900 prophets said in verse 39 The Lord is the real God. The Lord is the real God. Let's pray together. Oh God, forgive us indeed for all of the altars that we have built to worship the false gods in our lives. We try our hardest. We do our best. We want to be faithful. But we know that we are only human. And we know that we need your grace and your power to not only name those false gods but to overcome them by worshiping you and you alone a few moments when we come forward to this communion table. May it be for us a moment that we turn our backs on the false altars and address the only one that really matters. We offer ourselves to you. All of our mistakes, all of our burdens, all of what makes us so broken and human and frail, we rest and abide in you. Just praying that you would send your fire down within our spirits and set us free. In Jesus' name.